Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. So, uh, we have been talking about heaven, and uh, we are going to watch a very brief video that uh, Gene Dorgie sent me a couple of weeks ago. And I got to tell you, so if you add up all the time I've been talking about heaven, um, it's, it's going to be literally hours, right? This video in just a few minutes really captures very well what I've been trying to say. Um, I do have uh, something I want to share with you later <laughs> after the video, uh, but you may not need it because the video does such an amazing job of capturing what we've been talking about relative to heaven. It's available online, um, so if you find it helpful, um, you're welcome to, uh, to watch it. So let's look at the video together. Ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature. But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but... This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin 
when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Do you find that helpful? Good. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a great presentation. And um, we do, the, the video I don't think was, um, was not negating the idea of paradise and Hades that we've talked about. It's just saying that the, the vast majority of teaching is about looking ahead to the new heavens uh, and the new earth. So I, I thought that was, um, that was very helpful. Okay, so we probably have reached the end of our series on heaven. I say probably because we were supposed to end it a couple weeks ago and we just kind of kept going. But I think today we, we're probably done for now. And uh, this is uh, Heaven Now Part 2. So last week we talked about Heaven Now Part 1 and how we experience heaven in our lives today. So if you remember on the video, those, those places where heaven comes into the world and heaven comes into our lives. And last week we talked about three of the ways that happens. We talked about how when we experience beauty, 
it draws us in a vertical relationship to, to, to God, who is the author of beauty. We talked about truth and how important it is for us to be people of truth in our own lives and uh, really in our families, in, in our nation, in our politics, to be people of truth as followers of Jesus Christ. And then we talked also about love and the fact that God is love and that he invites us into the fellowship of love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are invited in to participate in that love. So this week we're going to pick up on where we left off last time, and we're going to talk about other ways in which we experience heaven now. There are some that we just don't have time to do. One of them is justice. So we long for justice, don't we? And when we see injustice done, it grieves us. But one day, friends, the Bible tells us justice will in fact be done. And so justice draws us forward into that time when justice will take place. Uh, We also um, understand the value of spirituality in this life when we we meet with God. Some of us have had uh, wonderful, what we sometimes call mountaintop experiences with God, where we experience his presence in such a real way. It's a bit of heaven in that experience. But But that's not the case for all of us. But I think all of us, in some ways, as we open our lives, can see and experience heaven in ways that may initially seem more natural, but actually draw us to God. Um, I I just, I'm just amazed at at babies. Um, If babies don't make you think about God and His creation and beauty, um, you know, that's a that's a spiritual experience. There's just something amazing to me about them. And of course, other ways that we can experience God. Some of us experience him in nature and it isn't necessarily a bolt of lightning, but it's something that that, uh, is just such a wonderful testament to God and what he desires for us in the future. It harkens back to the garden and takes us forward into heaven. So today, however, we're going to talk about three more ways that we experience heaven now. And uh, these three are mentioned by Gary Black in the book that I've been sharing with you, and I'm going to actually touch base a little bit with the story uh, of Gary and Dallas's relationship today. But the three we're going to look at are fearlessness, power, and joy. First of all, fearlessness. And for those of you who wonder, we don't have a really short worship time and then a long sermon. Um, We're going to come back with communion uh, and worship in just a little bit here. So fearlessness, Jesus makes some very strong statements about fear. He says in Matthew 8, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. In Mark 5, he says, Do not fear, only believe. Peter Kreeft is a Catholic philosopher, and in his book, Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing, he puts our situation so very simply. He says, Faith in heaven's presence produces the greatest psychological revolution imaginable. Faith in heaven's presence produces the greatest psychological revolution imaginable. Why is that? Because it's so incredibly positive. If you think about about nihilists who don't believe in anything and nothing has meaning, or if you think about atheists or agnostics, um, there really isn't a lot to look forward to. But we who believe in heaven not only have this amazing thing to look forward to, 
But we experience it in different ways now, even now in our lives. And that's what Peter is referring to in terms of this psychological revolution, in terms of a healthy a way, a healthy psyche, a healthy way of understanding life. The reason for this is really clear in 1 John 4 where we read, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but say it with me, Perfect love casts out fear. And Kreef puts it this way. He says, faith and faith's fruit in our lives casts out fear in our lives. So Jesus says not to fear, only believe. We're told that God loves perfectly and perfect love casts out fear. So if we do the math, we see that as followers of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't live our lives in fear. We also experience God's love as a part of heaven now. We talked about that last time. And one day we will abide with him forever in heaven. And so again, there is no reason to fear. So the conclusion, sort of almost a logical conclusion, is that if we've experienced God's love, if we have faith in him, we should live fearlessly. Now, if I were to close the sermon here, some of you would say, well, that's very nice, Pastor, but I, I, I have unfortunately experienced fear in my life. Well, I have to say in that while I believe this completely theologically, um, I, this is an area that I struggle with. In, in my family, we have had generations of challenges with anxiety, and anxiety is basically fear on steroids, right? And so it's been a challenge for us and a challenge for me. But if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about working on our character and how that is something that may continue um, in heaven, this is one of those areas in my life that, uh, that I need to work on. And it's an area perhaps for some of you or it may be in some of the other areas that we've talked about um, that you will experience a, a need and experience God's grace and his spirit helping you in the midst of it. We have such amazing reassurances of God's love and the fact that we don't need to fear uh, in the scripture. One of, one of the great passages, if it's not marked in your Bible, you should do so, and that is in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Is that not 
psychologically revolutionary in terms of the way that we as followers of Jesus should approach life. Casey and I uh, talked in the first service, at least across the stage here, about a song we haven't sung for a while, but we might in the future. It goes like this. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Wonderful, amazing words in Christ alone. The second thing is power. Dallas Willard would pray this prayer for his students. He said, I pray that you would have a rich life of joy and power, abundant in supernatural results, with a constant clear vision of never-ending life in God's world before you, and of the everlasting significance of your work day by day, a radiant life and a radiant death. Dallas spoke of the spiritual power that's given to us in the Holy Spirit. We read about this in Ephesians 6 where we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I, I, I grieve when I hear about uh, Christians in leadership who use their power um, to hurt people. As you might imagine, part of my job, uh, Carl Barth said that in ministry, in theology, uh, in the work of the Lord, we need to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Uh, now, most of us, I think, get our news online. But, but I, I, I try to keep up to speed with what's going on in the culture and what's going on in the world. And when I read these stories about, about how people have been hurt, it grieves me um, so much because, well we should always work for good, um, we need to remember that we are in a spiritual battle and that we need to use our power to help people, to help people move forward, not to hurt people. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a story that... Um, Gary tells about being with Dallas, and uh, and in Dallas, the last months of his life, um, he was um, something of a, a of a of a helper in this process um, of being a, not only a friend to Dallas and a helper, but also um, talking about Dallas's work. And he put together a long list of Dallas's uh, writings, the the papers that he wrote, and it was this enormously long list. You may recall Dallas was. Uh, the chair of the philosophy department at the University of Southern California. And uh, he put this together and he talked about um, all of this accomplishment and the fact, however, that Dallas understood it not as his accomplishment, but rather what was the length and breadth of God's power and grace in his life. Gary describes this moment. He says, as I sat there with him, tears of thanksgiving slowly running down his face, I remember Dallas's description of divine grace. 
Arguably, one of his most brilliant insights was his awareness of evangelical Christianity's need to refine grace or to redefine grace. Grace is often misunderstood as a synonym for forgiveness and mercy, not for Dallas. Instead, grace encompasses God's ability to give us the means to do what we could not otherwise do on our own. Nowhere does he state this better or more memorably than in a talk he gave that is replicated in The Great Omission. This is a book by Dallas, and this is what he says about grace. He says, may I just give you this word? Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. Many people don't know this, and that is one major result of the cutting down of the gospel to a theory of justification or salvation, which has happened in our time. Dallas says, I have heard leading evangelical spokespeople say grace has only to do with guilt, and many people today understand justification or salvation as the only essential result of the gospel, and the gospel they preach is, and you will hear this said over and over by the leading presenters of evangelical faith, that your sins can be forgiven, and that's it. Dallas says, in contrast, I make bold to say the gospel of the entire New Testament is that you can have new life now in the kingdom of God if you will trust Jesus Christ. Not just something he did or something he said, but trust the whole person of Christ in everything he touches, which is everything. There's one God, there's one mediator between God and human time, uh, humankind, Jesus Christ, himself human. If you would really like to be into consuming grace, just lead a holy life. The true saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. Become the kind of person who routinely does what Jesus did and said. You will consume much more grace by leading a holy life than you will by sinning. Because every holy act you do will have to be upheld by the grace of God. And that upholding is totally the unmerited favor of God in action. Friends, what, they're, what he's saying is, is that so many of us have just been taught about grace concerning salvation, asking Jesus into our hearts, receiving that gift of grace. But in fact, what Dallas is saying is we desperately need the power of that grace to continually allow us to live the life that is honoring to God. So friends, Jesus dealt with the power of God carefully And I think that the most critical piece for that is just before the cross, if you remember in the garden where Jesus said these words, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. That's the essence of how we utilize the power of God's grace in our lives is to live our lives in such a way that we say your will be done. May God help us with that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Finally, this morning, um, we move to the last point, and that is about joy. Jesus reminds us of the lasting quality of joy when he talks about uh, his, with his disciples about what will happen in the future. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your jo- sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remember the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your sorrow from you. My old friend uh, C.S. Lewis 
wrote his autobiography and entitled it Surprised by Joy. So much of his writing is about this experience of God's joy. In his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly about prayer, he says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. But the joy of heaven isn't just for the future. Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians that we are to rejoice always, rejoice always, live in joy always. It's hard to think in terms of always living in joy in this life because of the trials, the challenges, the sadness that we experience in this life. But we're told here that we should be able to experience joy not only looking forward to heaven, but in our current context. In Gary Black's book, he talks about being with Dennis at the time, uh, Dallas, excuse me, at the time of his death. And uh, he was with Dallas in the moment, <clears throat> excuse me, the moment that Dallas passed away. Um, and then he um, quietly left Dallas's room in the hospital, made his way down in the elevator and went outside And he said it was a bright, sunshiny day outside and people all around him were just going on with their their business. And he he says this, he says, "I, I could not believe I was almost dumbstruck by the fact that none of these people, no one around me was even aware of the tragically sad news I carried inside. Dallas Willard was gone, and I wanted the world to stop and realize it, to feel the impact of that reality, to bow their heads and take hold of just a moment of contemplation. Halt your day just a little. Stop for a few seconds and cry with me. But they couldn't hear my wounded heart, and I have never felt more alone. Gary says it was a long drive home from the hospital, so I stopped at Starbucks to get some coffee. As I ordered and waited for my coffee to be made, I found myself in a moment of still contemplation. I looked down, took a deep breath, and exhaled along, uh, and slow filled my breath. My thoughts landed on a scene in the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral. The scene that always captured my attention depicted the raw morning of a man reading Funeral Blues, a poem of lament by W.H. Auden at his friend's funeral service. It is a gripping display of sorrow. The words started to pass through my mind. The last two verses deliver the full burden of a broken heart. The poem goes like this. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood for nothing can ever, nothing now can ever come to any good Gary says, I started to weep. He said, no, honestly, it was a sob, a shoulder-shaking sob right there in front of the Starbucks counter during the morning rush. I was embarrassed, but at the same time, I didn't care. What more could I lose? All the stress and strain, worry, doubt, hope, disappointment, love, anger, and gratefulness, jumbled and confused in a mix of sorrowfulness and exhaustion, were shaking out of me all at once. Just as I was beginning to wonder if I would fall to my knees, a a strong arm reached around my shoulder and held me fast. I looked up, and through blurry eyes, I saw a man 
slightly older than me, with short coal black hair, wrap-around sunglasses, and a thick Fu Manchu mustache that reached down below his chin. He was wearing a sleeveless shirt exposing large, very hairy, and very tattooed arms. He never turned to look at me. He never said a word. He just held me for a while. Those around us focused all their attention on their smartphones so as to act like nothing was amiss. Eventually, my name is called. I went to the counter, retrieved my coffee, and when I turned around, he was gone. I wanted to thank him. I just didn't have any words. I think he understood. The drive home was a blur. Memories, recent and distant, raced through my mind. As tears rolled down my face, I finally pulled into my driveway, walked upstairs, hugged my wife, got into bed, and wept in her arms. When I had gained some composure, we talked about the past few days until my body began to search for sleep. As the power of my thoughts and feelings slowly began to fade, I was able to offer a prayer. I thanked God for Dallas and the gift he had been to me, my family and countless others. I thanked God for the gift of the years, months, and days I was given with Dallas. I admitted my confusion, anger, and even my disappointment that Dallas had not been healed. There were so many prayers and hopes left unrealized. I asked God for time and grace to deal with my angst, and I prayed God would continue to reveal and clarify for me the vision of the kingdom that I first learned about from Dallas. As exhaustion overtook me, somehow a wonderful measure of the same peace like a river came attending my way. Despite my lot, my teacher had taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul. Gary concludes this way. He says, you may have wondered why I'm telling the story, this story, in a tap chapter entitled Joy. Very simply, despite my overwhelming sorrow, there was an undeniable and unshakable joy that undergirded these last few moments with Dallas. There was also a palpable sense of joy found in the comfort of both my mystery angel and my wife's arms that continue to fill my heart now when I bring those memories to mind. There's an enduring, everlasting quality of joy that is so very different from happiness. It's often suggested that happiness is an emotion that follows feelings that range from, range from contentment to physical pleasure and even significant periods of satisfaction. Joy, however, is a state of being that often but not always is manifested even in the absence of pleasure, contentment, or satisfaction. Joy has the potential to be much more permanent and robust than happiness. Happiness is typically derived from external circumstances, whereas joy emanates from internal, spiritual, and non-material sources. And, and then Gary goes on to say what I leave with us this morning, and that is, why do we talk about joy rather than happiness? And the reason is because joy is the air of the kingdom of God now and forever. Joy is the heir of the kingdom of God now and forever. Friends, the scripture puts this in a form of a blessing, and I offer that blessing over you this morning. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing.
so that the power in the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful promise of heaven. Lord, help us not just to hang on and wait for the day to come when we're with you or you return, but help us, Lord, to live in to heaven even now. In Jesus' name, amen.